as we continue in our series looking at John's letter, I think it's worth reminding ourselves uh, of the context of why John was writing. Maybe it's the first time you're here today. You're really, really welcome. Um, and it's really helpful just to help understand why was John writing. There was real division in the church when John was writing. Two rival factions of Christianity claiming to be the real thing. On one hand, we had a group saying that they were the authentic Christianity. Uh, this group looked down on what they saw as primitive, basic and simple Christianity, a, a faith based solely on the teaching of the apostles. Uh, this group argued we needed to move on, um, that they themselves had a more profound view of God. Uh, you can imagine them saying something like, what you used to believe just isn't right for culture today. Uh, we need to move on beyond that. We've had a deeper experience now or something similar. For, for them, God didn't have any restricted moral standards. Uh, for this group, it was what you thought in your mind and heart that mattered, not how you lived. Then on the other hand, we had those of, of what you might call original Christianity, those trying to follow the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. And you can imagine them asking questions at this time like, oh, are we sure we've got it right? Do this other group have it more together? Are we just being traditional for tradition's sake? They would have maybe asked in response to the first group, do we really need to bother with God's way and how we live? Because if we don't, surely we'll fit in more in this world. This is the context John was writing into. And I find it striking how it echoes in our world today, doesn't it? It may echo questions and struggles you yourself have had or you've had in conversations with your friends. One of the main questions here today from John is to ask, does it matter how we live? Does it matter how we live? As a Christian, does it matter how we live or is it purely about what we believe or what we think? Look, I've had conversations with people who have quizzed me about this. They've said, what Jesus says is it doesn't matter how you live because it's all about grace. Rules and regulations for the Old Testament, not what Jesus taught. Now, wonderfully, let me hear you loud and clear, say loud and clear, the New Testament is all about grace. We come to Jesus as we are, and we're messed up and we're sinful. But Jesus didn't say, come as you are and stay as you are. We're called to repentance. The word Jesus used, a turning around, a submitting to God in all areas of our lives. And so this passage raises this issue, does it matter how we live? And John is saying that authentic Christianity cares very much about how we live because it flows from an amazing set of gifts that God had given us, all by grace. Christianity is not saying live a certain way and then I'll reward you. But these gifts, this, this understanding of who we are, if we understand them, it will lead to a desire of change in our lives and it will lead to transformation. Sadly, incomplete transformation this side of the new creation, but it will lead to it. It's been said that Christian ethics can be summed up as be who you are. Not live as you once were, but live as you now are. And so John is going to help us understand here in this passage who we are now. And then he's going to show us two marks, two pieces of evidence that show us and assure us that we are who God has declared us to be. At the end of this sermon, my aim is that we leave confident, confident in who we are in Christ. Not when you maybe read this passage the first time full of doubt and questions like I did. So let's jump in. Firstly, who are we? We're God's children, verse 28 uh, to 3, verse 3, or 29, I think we had it there. If you know what he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. 
See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Look at verse 1. And do this. Tell yourself today, friend, this applies to you if you put your trust in Jesus. This is the gift of God that will change us. I don't know about you, but I can so quickly move past this as just saying it's too elementary, it's too basic. Uh, and I don't wonder at this. Christian ethics, be who you are. Who are you? You're a child of God. John is wanting to assure the believers in light of this new group, this is who you are, this is what has happened. For those who put their trust in Jesus, the Father has lavished on you a new identity. Let, let's, just, let's just pause here. The creator of the universe, the one who is so holy, so pure, the one who is all good, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, this God, he creates everything, he sustains all things, he's the reason we're here today, this God we can call Father. Helen did it in her prayers earlier, didn't he? Our Father who art in heaven. Father, and he sees us like his children. That's who we are. Um, I was down seeing my parents yesterday um, at the school my father teaches at. I had the same conversation. Um, I have nearly every time I meet someone who knows my dad. Um, you guys, some of you will have met him a few weeks ago when he was here. The conversation every time goes along the lines of, you must be Mr. Reed's son, I know as soon as I saw you. I look just like I'm a splitting image in some senses, creepily so occasionally. Uh, one time, um, when my father was teaching, he's a headmaster, um, he was helping one of the primary school teachers in a school a bit like this, uh, teach about a man who used to live in the local area, a guy called Mr. Wish. It was genuinely his name. Um, and Dad would basically go into the class, he would dress like Mr. Wish, old 1800s clothes, he'd put on a little beard, but you could, if you looked, you could tell it was him. He'd put on an outfit and he'd, he'd ask, uh, answer questions which the kids had about who was Mr. Wish and what was life like in the 1800s. Uh, one day I was home from university, so we decided to play a little prank on the primary school children. Um, you see, the class had been coming up to my dad um, every single time, kind of looking a bit funny and go, Mr. Reed, you look just like Mr. Wish, do you know that? And he played dumb and the kids wouldn't have a clue, but some of them thought they were really clever and go, oh, it's definitely Mr. Reed, and some of them were, you know, no, no, that's just Mr. Wish, Mr. Wish came to see us. They're, they're six or seven, so they've still got that wonderful imagination. So I returned to from university, um, and I got dressed up in Mr. Wish's outfit. Um, I walked into the class and I began to teach for class. They asked me questions and I pretended that I was Mr. Wish. And a few minutes later, my dad walked in the room and you could just see on the looks of the faces of the kids going, I thought Mr. Reed might have been Mr. Wish, but Mr. Reed is in the room with me. In their heads, maybe Mr. Wish was real after all and it wasn't just Mr. Reed in a costume. You see, for me and my dad, we have a striking family resemblance. For those who have entered the family of God, we are to have a family likeness at least in part, not physically, but morally in some senses as well. Verse 28, if you know, verse 29, sorry, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See there, that family likeness. You see, how can we say it doesn't matter how we live? God is righteous and those who have entered into his family will be righteous too. For Christians living now, there is this sense of now and not yet, isn't there? So we know this is our experience, don't we? Jesus paid the penalty for sin on the cross, but full victory has not yet been seen, as it will be when Jesus returns. Now, I've heard it described a little bit like uh, the difference between D-Day and V-E-Day in World War II. On D-Day, the battle was won. 
Jesus died on the cross, but on VE Day was when the war was over. It took a few years. We've seen it in 1 John, those, those last days. We're in those period now. So for Christians, we know this as we fight against sin, don't we? It's not dealt with yet. But let's not skip past the wonderful news of what is to come. You see, it says here, we saw when we read down, didn't we? Verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. How wonderful is this? Think of that day. Let this day motivate us. No more battle against sin. No more regret. How wonderful will that day be when Christ returns? We'll be absolutely perfect and be like him. It's mind-blowing. And then look down at verse 3. All who have this hope in him, this hope of Christ's return, purify themselves just as he is pure. So as we remember who we are and as we remember that victory that is to come, it says all who have this hope in themselves, in, in him, purify themselves just as he is pure. In other words, if we're looking forward to that day, it will change us now. If we belong to the children of God, we will hate sin. And so as we look forward to that day, we will be without sin. In this life, we're striving to fight against sin now. We will know it matters how we live now. So, so who are we? We're God's children. And that demands a striving our lives to be like Jesus. I don't know if you know what the most uh, counterfeited product in the UK is today. I'd probably be a bit worried if you did. Um, it turns out it's Levi jeans. Um, not sure why, um, but there you go. Everyone wants a pair of Levi jeans. Uh, there are hundreds and thousands of counterfeit pairs of Levi jeans out there. Uh, in case you're worrying you might be duped the next time you go to Vista Village and buy a pair, there is a way to tell if you've got the real deal or not. You, you just flip them inside and there's a little stud, I'm told, on the inside. It's got a little code on it. That code proves they're the real deal. And John is writing to assure these people that their Christianity is the real thing, it's authentic. And he's saying, there are ways to tell in your own life to be assured that your faith is real, that you are a child of God. And so we now have two marks of what it means to be a child of God. We have one mark, which is a child of God who strives to be like Jesus. And the other half, a child of God loves like Jesus. Those are the two marks we're just going to look at. So three verses four to ten. God's children strive to be like Jesus. Let me read verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who keeps in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. See verse 6. We have a repeated phrase throughout the whole passage. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Authentic Christianity comes from knowing Jesus. It comes from a relationship with Jesus. I was at a summer camp years ago and I remember hearing this talk to me. The topic, Christianity is Christ. It's not rules, not rituals, but a relationship with Jesus. I studied Arabic and Islamic studies at university. I spent a long time looking at and studying the Quran. Uh, my dissertation at the university was on the topic of Allah and Yahweh, one God and the same. Uh, in which I argued that the God of the Bible and the God of Islam are entirely different. In Islam, you can never truly know God. With Jesus, we're told we can know him and have a relationship with him. And Christianity is not a set of moral demands. You may read this passage and think, this looks really heavy. 
It's not like the five pillars of Islam, although our relationship with God will have an effect on our lives. Verse 6 expresses this reality negatively. It says if we have this relationship with Jesus, we will want to live in a certain way. This is John, he's countering the claims of the false teachers who used to say we know God, but their lifestyle disproved that claim, John is saying. These false teachers would have been indifferent to sin. They would have been freely indulging in the ways of the world. And John is saying it is truly inconceivable for someone who truly knows Christ to be indifferent to sin. A child of God will take sin seriously. What is sin? Uh, lots you could say, but rebellion against God, against his ways, and it cuts us off from God. And so we see when we go backwards to verse 5, amazingly, think of his love lavished on us, verse 5, but you know that he, that is Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. He who had no sin in him came to take away our sins. Jesus hates sin. That's why he came to deal with it. And he hated it so much that he came down to earth and died on a cross for our sake. That is how much he hates sin. And so John is saying, anyone who claims to know Jesus but is indifferent to sin does not know him. Think about family likeness. Do you want to be like the father? The father hated sin so much that he sent Jesus. Imagine at the next election, I'm sure there'll be one soon. Uh, we'll get bored with what's going on at the moment. Uh, someone will come, he's going to knock on your door. You open it, it's a man representing UKIP. They still exist, um, I'm told. Um, he begins to speak, and this man from UKIP says, as my first policy, I want us to repeal Brexit and unite again with Europe. Gareth looks confused, rightly so, because straight away we would know he wasn't from UKIP, wouldn't we? Their essence is separation from the EU. It's their sole reason they exist, and it's why they'll struggle from now, probably. Anyone who says they're a Christian but isn't taking sin seriously is showing they don't know Jesus. It's what marks them. It's an evidence. Now, though, we come to the question I'm sure you've all been asking yourselves. It's probably been distracting you for the last bit since we read that passage. You're probably going, Johnny, how can this be? Because I sit and I do keep on sinning. <laughs> and you obviously think we do too, because Hells has just prayed, Lord, forgive us <laughs> for our sins. Um, Lanks even preached two weeks ago, 1 John 1.8, and John says it, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So are we all contradicting ourselves? Is John contradicting himself here? Well, no, is <laughs> a simple answer. In verse four, uh, the tense here in the Greek, it's the present continuous tense. This is referring to the direction of our lives, a regular pattern of who we are. You can't claim to know Jesus if you're not wanting to change your life and live in the direction of holiness without any fight for sin or regret from it. When we do fall, when we do stumble and sin, and we do, I do daily, all the time, ask my wife. What do we feel or think? Do we regret it? Do we seek to fight it? Do we seek to live for Jesus? If we don't, then John is saying there is no evidence that we know God. It's blunt. John's blunt here. And verse 7 then comes in and reminds us, it calls us to not be fooled by those people, this other group, who say it doesn't matter how we live. John is black and white here, and he's black and white throughout his letter. He doesn't pull any punches, does he? It's a black and white issue, and he goes on to talk here in this little section here uh, about good and evil, about God and Satan, about light and darkness. And John is saying there are two completely different religions. They've been battling from the beginning of time. Satan comes in Genesis 3, tempts Adam and Eve, and man is under his dominion. But look in verse 8, God sent Jesus. 
in his grace to come and rescue people from sin and death and bring them into his kingdom. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Please don't misunderstand John. He's not saying, and I'm not saying that if we ever sin, then we're proving we're not in God's family. John here is talking about the direction and pattern of our lives. If we belong to God, we will seek to fight sin and pursue godliness. We, we will fail. I look at my own life. I know that time and time again we will fail. But godliness is what we will seek to have. And how will we fight this sin? Well, verse 9 reminds us gloriously of the end of last week. How will we fight it? No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go in sinning because they have been born of God. At the start of our passage, we have the language of adoption. We're God's children being taken into God's family. But when anyone ever gets adopted, that doesn't mean that the child then has new genes, does it? They're still adopted. They still uh, have the genes of their parents and who they were. But imagine it could happen. Imagine the genes could change so the child was actually like you. Well, this is the miracle of adoption in the Bible. The seed of God enters our lives, the Holy Spirit. In effect, it says to us, because you believe in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, I've joined you to Christ. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. He's in heaven, so you're in heaven. He's holy, so you're holy. Your position right now, objectively and factually, is as a holy and beloved child of God. You're dead to sin, alive to righteousness, seated in my holy heaven. Now live like it. And I don't know about you, but I expect it's the same as I've, I've heard this before from others. But when I first became a Christian, when I had the Holy Spirit first in my life, I felt I got worse, not better. The Spirit would prompt and nudge me and show me areas of my life that needed changing. Some things changed quickly. Other battles still continue today. But at my deepest level, I want to do what he wants me to do. The Holy Spirit challenges me when I sin every day. And here we see that if you're seeking to battle sin, a self-confessed sinner, but not a happy sinner, someone who's longing for that day when there will be no more sin, then be assured of your authentic faith. Have confidence. It's not arrogance to say with confidence that you are saved. And John here is challenging those who are indifferent to sin. And if that's you, please do be warned. Authentic Christianity will lead to change. Slow now. Slow now. We know that when we look at our lives, don't we? It's slow, but wonderfully complete in the new creation. That's the first mark of a child of God. The second mark, God's children love like Jesus. Verse 10 links it for us. It says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. John's saying our attitude to other believers marks who we are. And once again, John gives us a relatively black and white example. He reminds us of the story of Cain and Abel. I've not got time to go into it fully, but I'd encourage you to read it. And in the story of Cain and Abel, what John's doing here is he's telling us of two humanities. Examples of behaviour which lead to sin and death, and examples which lead to life. The story of Cain and Abel, if you know it, the first two brothers. Cain and Abel both give offerings to God. We don't know precisely why, but Abel's offering is accepted and Cain's is not. Cain is full of envy and murders Abel. Sinful hearts can be like that, can't they? We hate to see others do well when we miss out or get what we want. And John here says that the reason Cain murdered Abel was that his own actions were evil and Cain's 
were righteous. John then goes on to say, anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer is eternal life residing in him. Now, surely it's too strong to equate hate with murder, isn't it? Well, Jesus does it in his teaching. As he teaches, there is a continuity between a heart of hate that leads to angry words, that leads to hurtful actions, hurtful looks, whatever it might be. And this attitude is the one that led to Cain murdering Abel. And John is saying that the false teachers belong to the same family as Cain, which hated God, which hated his people, which hated righteousness. And remember here, John is talking in terms of trajectory. He's not saying that murder is an unforgivable sin. He can gloriously forgive. Jesus himself on the cross prayed, Father, forgive those murdering me right now. There's countless stories of people who God has forgiven. But no one is morally static, and the question to ask is, which direction am I heading in? We think back to our Levi genes. How do we spot the people of God? They love God's family. They're not driven by hate. They love God's family. We've been reading uh, in small groups this book, and I encourage you to read it. I'm not going to read it all out now uh, because I'm aware of time, but do look at number 11 on page 18. It's an outline of how the gospel and being motivated by the gospel affects how we love, how we love our brothers and sisters, those of us who believe in Christ in this room. But the question comes, what does that love look like? And we see that unpacked in verses 16 to 18. What does the love look like? Well, it's not a Valentine's Day fluffy bunny kind of love. It's not a bad poetry kind of love. This is a love seen in action. The cross was not an accident. Christ showed his love for us in action. Now, we read verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And if you read it a bit like me, you think, well, that's quite, actually quite easy to say, because it's probably not going to get proven. <laughs> Martyrdom is quite unlikely for most of us in this room, at least at the moment. It's unlikely to be tested. So John may be predicting that in some sense, I don't know. But then verse 17 grounds it for us. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? You see, it's easy to say, I love the world. It's easy to say, I love God's people. It's really easy to say, I love town church. I love the people. I love coming on a Sunday. It's far harder to say, I love that really annoying person who just, just grates me. It's really different to say, I love that person so much, I'm going to sacrifice something to help them. I wonder what this love looks like for us at town church. What a challenge verse 17 is. In my years at other churches, you'll all have your own stories, I hope. I can, I've seen it in countless ways. People maybe opening up their homes to people who had no place to stay. People spending time with those who otherwise would have no one to spend time with. People giving money sacrificially to someone in need. There's many ways where we can love each other sacrificially. It will cost, though. An American seminary conducted an experiment. Uh, their students were summoned to a surprise lecture. Uh, half those students had just heard a sermon on the Good Samaritan. Half of those guys hadn't. Uh, and the seminary, seminary had paid for an actor, an actor to stand outside the lecture hall, look homeless, drunk, yell obscenities as they walked in, whatever it might be. How did the students respond? Well, whether they had heard the sermon on the Good Samaritan or not made no difference. Some people stopped, some people didn't. 
What did matter, though, was whether the person was early for the lecture or late. You see, time is often the biggest thing we can give. The commodity we most value is often not money or possession, but time. And this type of love for us at church, this type of love we're being challenged to, it will put our lives a little bit out of joint, won't it? As we sacrificially commit to being with each other. Now, what this could look like, please do discuss this in your growth groups, in your small groups. Process it, think it through. What could this sacrificial love for each other look like? We've got to know each other if we're going to love like this, don't we? As well. We've got to spend time with each other. Mother Teresa, she's seen her fair share of poverty, fair share of deprivation. She said the greatest disease in our world is loneliness. I think it's fair to say there should be no lonely people in our church. Let's love like Jesus. Finally, as I close then, God's children can have confidence. You may have been listening to this and just going, that's a high bar. <laughs> but we've seen two marks of the children of God, their obedience and love for his people. And let's remember the purpose of John writing and the purpose of me preaching today is to give you confidence. Verse 19 is John reminding us of this. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest, at rest in his presence. And in this final section, John is wanting to assure the believer whose heart is not at rest. Some of us are all too familiar, aren't we, with that accusing voice? You're hopeless. Oh, if only they knew who I really was, what I really do with my time. You may have felt that voice today as you've read some blunt statements from John. And John here gives us a remedy of what to do when our hearts condemn us. Verse 20, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Remember God knows our hearts far better than we do. Don't think, never say to yourself, if only God knew what I was really like. He does know who you really are and he still loves you. It's been said for every thought within, take 10 looks at him. That's a good remedy, isn't it? And we doubt. God wants us to enjoy a confident relationship with him. And we see this in verse 22 and 23. We see John here talk of a circle of confidence. An ever deeper knowledge of God shapes our prayers, which are then ever more in accordance with his will and then are answered. God wants us to be confident. He wants us to be assured. And in verses 23 to 24, he concludes this section. And with this, I'll close with a brilliant summary. John is saying, you want assurance? You want to know authentic Christianity in today's world? Well, here's four things this insurance can be based on. Four things. Number one, you see that, verse 23, and this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. The first command, our confidence is not to, become a, is not to come because of what we do, but because of Christ. Let's hear it loud as clear as we hear John here. If you're feeling insecure, look to Christ. Let's do this together. Let's preach truth to each other. Our confidence is not to come because of what we do, but because of Christ. Then we see it flow down to loving each other. What can our assurance be based on? Our love for each other. We don't love as we should, but if we are believers, we will see a change in this area. Keeping God's commands, as we've said, we will continue to get this wrong this side of eternity. But our trajectory will be towards hating sin. John Newton, uh, the writer of Amazing Grace, will sing a little bit of it later. He once said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be, but still I am not what I once used to be. What is your heart's longing? Do you hate sin? 
finally, our final bit of assurance for Holy Spirit. We see that there. The one who keeps God's command lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. You see, it's by the Spirit we're enabled to say that we believe in Jesus. It's by the Spirit that we're enabled to say that he died for us. It's by the Spirit we can trust God. It's by the Spirit we can speak to our Father, and it's the same Spirit that gives us love in our hearts and helps us to follow him. So brother or sister, be confident. You worried you don't love enough? Look to Christ. Are you worried you don't follow Jesus very well? Look to Christ. Are you worried you don't believe? Let me ask you this question. Have you seen any change in your life? And in all honesty, the fact you care enough to be asking this question is a strong indicator that the Spirit's at work in you. We're meant to have confidence. We're meant to know that we're God's children. Christian, friend, family here, be confident as you live out who you are. Be who you are. Be a child of God. Let me pray. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Father, we praise you. We thank you that you choose to love us, that you are our Father. We thank you that you long for us to live lives of confidence in you, honouring you, loving each other. Lord, help us to do that. We need your help, Lord. We thank you that our assurance is based on you, not on who we are, but on who you are, Lord. Keep transforming us as you promised to do, we pray, Lord. We long to honour you. But we praise you for Christ, Lord. Take our doubting spirits, we pray, and just help us to throw ourselves onto you, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.